0: So, the big question is this, how do regular golfers like us, who have jobs, families, and very little spare time, how do we improve our golf and lower our handicaps? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name's Paul Gray. Welcome to Golfing Secrets. In today's episode, well, it's a little bit different. It's the first time we've had a guest on the podcast I'm hoping to do several more of these going forward. Uh, we've got two or three sort of planned in over the coming weeks and months. And and they're really designed to give an insight into those that work in the golf industry, but not just at the top level. We've all you know, seen that the pros on the on the TV and, and in particular with the new Netflix documentary. We have sort of seen, you know, some of their lifestyles, you know, the private jets and all of that good stuff. But but really. What's it like to work on a more local basis? Now, I'm sure many of us have thought how great it would be to be a pro. Um, but, but what does it actually mean to be a PGA pro on a local basis? Well, our first guest, he has coached an Open Silver Medal winner. That's the amateur winner of the Open. He's carried on tour. He's been to Challenge Tour qualifying and recently made it through to the second round of Open qualifying. Now, this episode was recorded at our local golf club, so please bear with some of the background murmurs and noises uh, and, and also a little bit of a challenge we had with the recording. But please do bear with it. Um, there's some really interesting insight and also some really good tips. So hope you all enjoy the episode. And of course, if you do like the content, please subscribe or follow the podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, so we're here at uh, Rochester and Cobham Park Golf Club, my uh, local club. Um, And we're here with uh, a gentleman by the name of Warren Wood, who uh, is, well, he's done coaching for me. Um, I've had several lessons with him, um, learnt lots. Um, But he's he's got quite a few interesting stories that I think we're going to sort of cover off in this this particular podcast. And um, I suppose the first thing is, welcome and um and uh Thanks for having me. well it's great to, it's great uh great to do you you are you are an honored guest onto the podcast you're our first honored guest onto the podcast so um so uh, really pleased to have you here um I mean, first, I just really, I suppose just a bit of background with you, I suppose, if we can just kick off with that sort of, you know, how did you get into golf and, and sort of where's that sort of come from? Really?
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's been, a, it's, it's been a while ago, so I'm going to test my memory, but yeah, it was a crossover really, I was a heavy swimmer, um, for about 13, 12 years from the age of about five, I don't know, than about nine years. Um, so I took up swimming, uh, dedicated. Uh, and then I just, I don't know why, I just crossed over. I think my my dad had a lot of influence on that because he was already a member of Washington Column. And then from there, it was, it was like a transition out of swimming, I think, I'd kind of reached a level, a club level that I was probably never ever really going to go much further. And it's like you like, say, it's, it's such a dedicated sport. And from, yeah, so I just naturally moved. I took my work ethic uh, from swimming into golf, started practicing and playing. And I was really fortunate because at the time, the golfers of Cobham or the, the kind of age group that I was moving into were very competitive as golfers. And I know this sounds awful, but it was actually a bit of a motivator. But they didn't really want to play golf with me because of my ability. Uh, they were quite keen as good golfers playing with themselves, which after 30 years, I totally kind of understand how that kind of happens. So, But I, I kind of persevered, um, probably annoying them and playing with them, playing poor golf, but with that, actually it dragged me forward. I don't know why. I can't remember a conscious decision to say, right, I'm going to try and beat all of these guys. And yeah, I did. I, did. I kind of practised. I worked so, so hard. Um, my work ethic was really, really strong. And with that, I kept chipping away at it year on year. And I, I think I say probably when I was about 14 and a half. And then after a couple of years, I was, uh, off of, I think when I was 18, I got down to plus one, which at the time, I think in the current, Handicap system that probably doesn't seem um, that great, but at the time uh, it was pretty low, uh, not the lowest, um, but it was a pretty good handicap. So I was quite, quite chuffed with that. And then after that, I, I transitioned. My dad said, Look, you've left school. Uh, I left school, and then he said, Do you want to give it a go? Um, and the, kind of that momentum just carried on. I moved into being a good amateur, county level. I never made it to uh, England level, which was a bit disappointing. I kind of would have liked to cross that. That line
0: was that, and, so, was that something sort of a goal that you sort of set yourself to get to sort of that England level? Or it was,
1: yeah, do you know what? I think my ambition was always to turn pro because once I had I'd, I'd never really got, and, and this is um, going back a little bit, having a mentor in your golf game, in your golfing life, and, and possibly even in your working life is so important that someone guide you through the different stages of your development i didn't have that so i probably didn't really understand what my journey was but i knew that i wanted to turn pro and through um, getting to a good level as an amateur again i probably reached my threshold very similar to where i was at swimming i thought i'm going to jump i'm going to turn pro which was when i was 21 and I, i guess at club level i was really good uh, I felt like I could kind of beat everyone in the club. I was probably number one player at the time. I hadn't really lost too many matches. Well, I hadn't lost in three years. So everyone that I played against at my, that, that level, I was beating. So it was a good sign. It was a good zone. But again, looking back on it from being a coach right now, it certainly wasn't good enough. It wasn't enough to kind of give you the confidence to go and tackle the professional game. But again, good work, work ethic. Uh, I just kept pushing developed and yeah went on to caddy on tour and um, play to Challenge Tour level i got to european tour final stages which was an amazing achievement for me Uh, i went through all three stages um which is super intense i wouldn't recommend it for anyone joy experience
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, everyone talks about challenge tour and and and, you know qualifying for the european tour and for, for the various tours i suppose and everyone always talks about how tough it is. Yeah. What's the, what was the general format back then for it? Because is it, is it now four? I've done over five or, or six rounds or something yeah, now, no, is it? Exactly,
1: as far as I'm aware, it's exactly the same. So we did four rounds in the UK. You then, I think it's the top uh, 15%, it's the top 20%, maybe. Um, so I think that was 25, 25 of us. Then you progress on to uh, another four rounds in Spain, to second stages. And, at that, uh, and what happens there is, is, The player, the actual field gets a little stronger because there is a percentage of challenge tour players that don't make it. Anyone between fifty and one hundred, I think they they then transition into the second stages. So again, the field becomes a bit tougher, and then from there you go on to final stages, another six rounds, uh, which is still in Spain, which is about a week later, and then you get a combination of uh, challenge tour players, European tour players have missed their card for that year, and they all merge together. So every every level, it gets that little bit more challenging. So, yeah, I obviously made it to European Tour sages, and then there was a, once I missed that, I kind of sort of merged into, there was a, like a crossroads for me uh, and a funny story actually was, as I played Sam Rock as final sages, and I walked away and I come back to the club and the head professional would said, said, how do you get on, how would you find I said, "Oh mate, the course was so tough, it was really good, it, it was really good but the uh, Euro Pro Tour wasn't really, like, preparing me for such a tough challenge. Well, about two weeks later, he bumped into the guy that won the European Tour School, which was Robert Rock. (laughs) And he said, well, in conversation, he said, oh, our pro played there. And he said it was really tough, blah, blah, blah. And he went, no, it wasn't really. No, it was quite easy. And I know that sounds really arrogant from his point of view. I think he was being honest in the conversation point, but I think it really highlights sometimes where your abilities are and how comfortable he felt and how uncomfortable I felt so I think for me then when the job offer come up at Coham, it was a great opportunity for me to turn around and say right let's just carve a different kind of journey for yourself and, and see where you can go being a PGA pro, uh, coaching, running a business and all of that stuff then spiralled in and that's led to sort of, 15 years down the line of me being the club professional at Russian Converidge. I'm
0: super on it. Euro, you mentioned Euro Pro Tour. That's now disbanded. Now, isn't it? The Euro Pro yeah, Tour, now isn't it? Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah, was
1: last year. Apparently, was, um, was,
0: um, was, I can't think who the guy was that did it. it was the yeah. uh, the boxing promoter yeah, who Eddie he, took, so, he uh, basically
1: Barry Hearn, and then took it on. He moved on to the boxing side, and then had another guy. I can, I think, I think actually took it over. I can't remember his name now, but he took it over when I was leaving. just stopping it, yeah. and I think he carried it on. But I don't know why they stopped it. But it's a shame. It's a shame for the for the guys, the local pros, that are now kind of sort of hunting around for um, a place to kind of sort of sharpen their teeth, really.
0: And, and and to be honest, that was one of the drivers for doing this. Actually, is that we all we all watch the golf on the TV, and it's all the top pros playing this spectacular golf, and you go and watch the events, and what they're doing with the ball is just amazing. Yeah. And and yet, you know, there's always that next level down and it's very tough to go from you know being a local pro um yeah. you know even on euro pro or, or even on the european tour and then going to pga tour they're big steps and yeah. we wanted to try and highlight with this you know i suppose in some respects how tough it, it it is to get to that level and then look a little bit more at the detail of you know what local pros do hence why this is why we sort of asked you to sort of come and sort of do and do this so, so you went into sort of the coaching side. Now, um, you know, one of the highlights, I imagine, would be you <laughs> know um, coaching uh, Alfie Plant um, uh, to win the sort of Open Amateur Champion um, <clears throat> medal. And how did that sort of transition? How did you get to sort of coaching Alfie? Was he
1: uh, again from memory because it was quite a long time ago? Alfie was uh, struggling as a scratch golfer, so he was kind of sort of. Struggling to make carts and move forward, and I think it was just perfect timing for the pair of us. I was coaching the county ladies and I was kind of new a little new to coaching i was um in terms of experience, but I, I was constantly reflecting on my playing um uh, on being a player and then relating it back to me as a coach and how I would create a program of uh, progression for a goal point and how I would get. Like I say, I got to kind of the, the threshold of the European Tour. How would I accelerate that for another amateur golfer? So it was the motivation for me to run that process and believe that I could do it as a coach and give it back to a player. And he was he was the candidate really. And we got on great as uh, as a pairing and set about. I I was open and I said this is what I want to try and achieve. I think I think I was playing in. Uh, a European Tour school. When I was about twenty-eight or twenty-seven, I said, "Look, I think I've got a program here that will get you there much quicker. So I think I can get you to the European Tour." That was my real goal for him. So something I couldn't achieve myself, but something I wanted to kind of give someone the opportunity to achieve. And throughout that journey, it was just we just had had the most incredible time. Uh, he went from being a scratch golfer to a plus four golfer. He won. He went from winning nothing to winning almost everything there was in the amateur calendar. So from being a golfer that, and we set that into the program. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that it was just a, a, an instant kind of acceleration into winning the European amateur, which obviously got him into the open where he could win uh, the silver medal. It was a process of understanding where success was at all of those different levels. So whether it be his midweek medal through to county level, through to um, what we called world events, which would have been a world um, point, a world ranking points competition, which would have been Sandridge Park, and then growing up into bigger world events where he could uh, accumulate points. And like you say, his progression because of hopefully the the program that we put together was <clears> continuous every year monitoring and improving and he climbed ranks and eventually finished I think 15th in the world as, uh, as an amateur before he turned professional and Alfie had no attributes. There is nothing about when people turn around to you and you, you look at some of these Swedish guys physically strong and tall. He, Alfie had none of that. Um, so it was grit and determination, the ability to work hard and listen and learn and develop constantly and understand numbers and data and just see where he can improve and become the best golfer he can become. And he would be a great, for a club golfer to analyse their own progression, he would be a person you would sit down and want to talk to. you go, how did you do it? I mean, he's gone on, one on the, um, since leaving me. He's gone on and played in an the European Tour event. So we achieved the goal. We got him into a European Tour event. So for me signing off as a coach, I probably achieved what I needed to. He's gone on and uh, represents himself fantastically well on the Challenge Tour and he is borderline as close as you can get to getting his European, fulfilling his dream really, being on the being European Tour. Being on
0: the European Tour, tour regularly, I suppose. Yeah,
1: but, it's, but it is tough. You are right, it's very tough to, to make a living at it. But it's a constant drive to understand your own game. That would be the, the thing I would encourage people to do. Don't, don't try and skip too many hurdles too quickly. Take one hurdle at a time. And if you find that hurdle, try and overcome that first one before you try and see the other six in front of you because otherwise it becomes very difficult to understand which hurdle you've just jumped, what you've learned from it and you just spiral into this kind of um, kind of confusion that golf has Is there's so much to learn and so much to achieve. Just take one step, try and climb one hurdle and in doing that, Every time you achieve one, it will make it to achieve, make it a lot easier to achieve the next one because that same template will give you the process that and follows on to the next one. And I
0: suppose you, you gain and you gain confidence from it. You know, you you, yeah. without without a doubt, I know. You know, personally, you know, sort of, I've, you know, my handicap has come down quite a lot over the last over the last year. And and to do that, I've certainly taken some elements of that and focused on stats. You talked about stats, which is. Is my, is my thing, um, yeah, yeah. I
1: suppose. It's such a, <laughs> an important part of today's game. I mean, there's so many great things that have happened to golfers, but, yeah, that is definitely one of them.
0: And I, I, know, I know you're definitely an advocate for technology um, mm-hmm. and, and, and and the likes – is that you know if if you're looking at sort of the whole sort of coaching arena it's changed significantly over the last know, over the last Mm -hmm. two or three years let alone the last 10 years um you know you've got simulators you've got various measuring devices you've got watches you've got cameras you've got all sorts that that can do all of this stuff What? What are the key ones or areas that you sort of tend to focus on when you're doing and looking at stats and things like that are there any particular ones that you tend to sort of
1: yes, use or stats are um, st- stats is i mean you've got up game golf um is pretty good uh, other than that I, that's the one I use um, oh, it comes to me in a minute there is another good stats um, uh,
0: so, i mean I, I use i use shot which is my go-to, yeah, I mean, go-to thing for lot. it um, and there's, there's so many out there that do a lot of that sort of stuff uh, I suppose it's, it's more a case of even though you can get that information you've got to use that information in the right way and yep. I think as you were saying focus on one or two elements of those stats and look to improve those for your handicap or where you're aiming to get to I suppose That's
1: it yeah I mean I, I, I'm a big advocate of um, better practice and I don't think that's educated into golfers all that well. So, like you say, predominantly we go down to the driving range and we go to a chipping green or whatever facilities we've got at our club and we set about just hitting balls of some description. And <laughs> I would, like you say, I mean, as we get further into the podcast, this may come out a little bit more, but I would always encourage people to understand, out of those golf balls, what are good swings and what are bad swings. What, And I mean that from... Um, because if you're focused on a particular area from a lesson that you've had with a coach or you're just working something that you've seen on YouTube or you're trying to develop something, make sure that when you go through the doors of your driving range, the golf balls that you hit all feel are all related to that particular area and that you achieve what you want from it. Because if you hit 100 balls and only 50 of them are engaged with it and the, the other 50 are not, potentially you've gained nothing from that practice session. So the hour may have been lovely. And if you do it for relaxation, absolutely. I've, I've got no problem with that. But if you're looking to develop an increase performance, the percentage of those balls has to outweigh the poor ones. So even if it's 70-30 or 51-49, whatever that percentage you want, you have to make sure that you're improving. And I've learned that actually less golf balls is more and the quality of them is so important because I want to accelerate and I don't have a huge amount of time to practice now but the one thing I would say yeah if you can quality of practice is Good much fact. better
0: than quantity yeah I'm yeah I'm certainly one for practice be that be that at home in the in the lounge on the, on, the, on the mat or 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 on the range and I've I've certainly been one that's been guilty of going down the range and just bashing a bucket of balls mm-hmm. um, exactly. and, and uh, I think there's there's a lot of people that do that um and it's something I've tried to sort of I've certainly tried to make it when I go and do a session at the range. I'm going to do a session at the range and then break that session down into a bit of a warm up, focus on the area that I want to do, and then try to end it up with with a bit of fun at the end. So, just hitting at certain targets, and if you're with somebody else competing against them to hit targets and things like that, and trying to do it in that way, I think is is certainly um, certainly a big thing. Um, okay, that's great. So, so going back to the the um, going back to the open, you know. None of us here, or the majority of people listening, won't have actually been to an open as a coach. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, what's what's what was that like as an experience? And and what did you did you pick things up from doing that? And the the environment, sort of. Um,
1: I suppose I tried to uh, look as natural as I possibly could in an open environment. I'm not sure I pulled that off all that well <laughs> because you're standing on a driving range and you're working as a coach. And you're surrounded by people that you watch on TV day in, day out. John DeSauflay, Tiger Woods, Brooks car at the time. They are all there. And you're trying to keep your call. look <laughs> like this is what you do every week. So, I would, like you say, I think I was immersed in the experience with Alfie, to be honest. Uh, Alfie and his dad created uh, like a... A team Alfie or a hashtag plant, and it was incredible. I mean, an Alfie birdied the first in the first day, he climbed the they seeing him on top of the leaderboard. And I think my experience was um, was really watching him grow as a player, and some of the amazing things that he went through. And again, it, I think it was completely natural to him. But one of the most amazing parts was seeing him sitting in there at the back of the driving range. There was a kind of autograph ten. And they would come down the driving range and say to the player, and there's a queue. I mean, there was like people queuing up, like hundreds of people in, in this tent, just waiting for players to go and sit at these desks. And they would just kind of sort of come around and stand and get Brooks, Kepko, whoever were the pro was there, would just sign their golf balls and all the bits and pieces, flags and stuff. And um, one day we'd kind of finished playing, and it was late in the afternoon, and one of the guys came up and said, Look, would you mind? Um, signing some some watercrafts, and he said, yeah, absolutely no problem. And, and it was an ongoing kind of sort of media frenzy around him as he went through the week, and watching, just standing there, We had, he had a physical training with him, and we were both standing kind of to the side, just in the background, and just watching this experience, it was, these guys go through this every week, and it was... The love of the games these spectators and fans had, that when you're a professional and you're training to try and be at the top, you don't see the surroundings around you. And I think that opened my eyes a lot to, uh, yeah, how much people love these players and and want to learn and know. And even just the kind of, I remember walking over the bridge to the chipping room, and uh, Alfie was walking up the staircase. And they were inundated with people wanting autographs. And you can see sometimes how these pros go, look, I just, I can't sign anymore. And we see on TV sometimes thinking, can that's a bit selfish, but you don't see what they do for the hour before, the minute they get caught on TV and they don't sign one. They've done hundreds of these things. And Alfie was like, I've got to practice. I said, I need to warm up. I need to get to the practice ground. We don't have a lot of time between rounds. And obviously there's rest periods and dinners and lunches and stuff that you've got to do. And he's walking over this bridge and it, and he had just said this to me and I was carrying the bag and I was just in front of him. And as I walked up the stairs to the railings, a, a guy had his son on his shoulders and he had a golf ball, big giant golf ball. And he didn't say a word. The young boy just put the ball through the railings and just held it there. In the, in the hope somebody that beside. someone will sign it. And Alfie walked up the stairs and I just said to him, I pointed back, I said, there is no way I know you can got practice. There's no way you cannot sign that ball. And it was just a just a wonderful moment. That, yeah. Um, like I say, Alfie completely earned every bit of it uh, to win the European amateur and to get into the Open. And like you say, it was that, yeah, it was just moments like that for the whole week. And then... Uh, Alfie is a very social person so he didn't keep himself in the players area so he had a huge amount of support that week so um, a second of occasion we we went he finished one of his rounds made the cut and he went into one of the hospitality tents which was accessible by all the members of the public. So he had just kind of sort of finished like eagle, par, par, par to make it by a shot, I think it was. Not a bad finish. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like the pressure he was under, I mean, even I, myself just thinking of trying to make all you're thinking about, make the make the cut, the open, make the car the open. I think the silver medal probably wasn't even on the table. It's was just the, being there for the weekend and yeah. experience another two days and this amazing event. So we walk off absolutely pandemonium around. It's just the family-wise. We were so excited for him, so thrilled. And it wasn't until he signed his card, he'd kind of sort of packed the clubs away and we'd wandered over and go, oh, God, well, that was an incredible event. Uh, well, credible last round. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. And he walked into the hospitality tent, and this place holds probably 300 people. Every single person. And he sent shivers down down my whole body. Got up and they were cheering and singing. It was like being in a football stadium. (laughs) It was incredible. And this went on for about 20 minutes. You could have heard it over the whole golf course. And he'd created this kind of amazing vibe. And like he was typical in typical Alfie style. He didn't want to sit with the players. He wanted to sit yeah. the fans and the support and lap up every piece of it it wasn't about the signing of the autographs or it was being there and just letting everyone share the experience with him and that's what he done so amazingly well and amongst that he played incredible golf um, won the silver medal and like you say I was standing there in the closing ceremony of the Open Championships.
0: I remember, I remember watching it and seeing you on it as you sort of walked down the thing in between the the um, the, uh, the staff there, and he walked down the thing, and I saw you sort of there just before yeah. he went
1: there. And it's it was... never really sunk in. It, officially, it's never really sunk in that there's two there's two tournaments: <clears throat> one to win, become the Open champion, and one to win the amateur silver medal. And I'm standing there with a the guy that I've coached. And along with a lot of support, I mean, I'm going to take um, all the credit for this because there was a huge amount of support behind Alfie with the England teams and everyone else in the Walker Cup squads. The fantastic coaches have given some assistance along the way. And, um, yeah, he, we, I was there. I was the coach the player that won the medal. I was thinking, this, this is what dreams are made of, really. Um, and yeah. like you say, again, as much as I, I didn't sink in, I could imagine how it must feel. And see so many golfers out there that would have loved to have been standing next to Jordan Spieth, right inside the ropes, um, winning the Claret Jug. It was it was crazy, but an amazing experience all round.
0: Just that, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's... it wasn't a personal one; it was more of individual, really, seeing how much joy Alfie was bringing to everyone else. To to those other people, yeah. It's crazy. It was was such such an
0: amazing. And uh, yeah, how many people would just love to have been in that position? It's it's you just. It's such a rarity. Um, If you think, I mean, if you think, if you go back twenty years, there's only twenty people in the world that will have achieved that. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's 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 something spectacular, really, yeah. isn't it? It's it's um, it really is. So, so, in terms of your sort of, you, you're looking at your sort of CV. Is, is that sort of really sort of up there? I suppose as the the top from a coaching yeah, perspective. I suppose it's got to yeah,
1: be. I, I, think the, I think do you know, what I think so many things that be achieved were incredible. I mean, finals, um, third in the world championships, winning the European championships. It was the process we went through because there was but it was always the goal, but the journey was what we were on. And that was the bit that we both enjoyed. It was, we were always moving forward. So we were always kind of ahead of the curve and every tournament was a learning experience. He went through a huge amount of heartache trying to get his first win, which was the Livam trophy, which he won uh, in great style easily in the end. And it, you, you don't see all the seconds and the thirds and the kind of strong starts and the poor finishes and then the um, poor starts and the strong finishes. There was weeks of it, uh, weeks and weeks of great results. But the ultimate goal was to win that, what we called a major championships, which in the amateur rankings for him was the Living Trophy, the British Amateur Championship, the English Amateur Championship. And once he'd kind of got that first one uh, out of the way, it was then really, how do we upgrade this? It was all about going for the Walker Cup. Uh, The silver medal was really a bonus. It wasn't kind of we wanted. Like winning the European Championships was a Mm. fantastic result uh, and a massive tournament for him to win. But it just kept adding to what he was doing. It was so there was there was a lot of highlights and again, everything's about the journey because and that sounds cliche, but actually, but it's not. If I can emphasise the process that you follow, not just. Uh, yeah, as a golfer, as an individual golfer that's trying to improve, you've got to get yourself into a process that can keep chipping away at this am, uh, uh, amazing game um, and just love chipping away at it and finding and learning and turning over to go, oh, there's no yeah. problem, we're going to deal with that and move forward. I'd like you have in your game. you yeah. found a way to move your handicap and success really is measured not on the best but on the best you can achieve and if you can find that that, for me, is the ultimate success in the game
0: of golf, anything. I, I think one of the challenges today is, is that there's so, much, there's so much content out there, there's all the social media, there's all the YouTube, there's everything out there, yeah. and everyone offering quick hints and tips and things that are going to instantly fix... The challenge that you've got with your golf game, yeah. Yeah. and it and it never work. It never works like that. Sure, you know some of those tips might work and be, but unless you do them consistently over a period of time, they don't become the normal for you, and therefore they don't work. Yeah. Uh, is my sort of view of it, um, and I think you've got a. I think setting longer term goals is definitely the way, and that's that's what I've certainly done, um, and is definitely the, the best way to do it. So, so, if you then take it take it back, then in terms of thinking about you, you sort of say you've got a program or, or, and something that you follow to get to the goal that you're aiming to, to get to and you included you mentioned about practice so in terms of, of, of practice do you are there is there a i suppose first off is there, is there one part of the game that you feel that the amateurs um you know should focus on and practice, and it's probably easiest to practice in order to impact their handicap? I know it's individual because some people have focuses on different parts of the game. They might not be so good at putting or, or chipping or whatever, but is there one particular area of the game that you come across most often where people, if they focused on that, could, could really improve their the handicap?
1: I, I think the the assessment part of someone's game, from a coaching perspective, so um, solely from my own process would be to uh, first of all understand uh, what they understand about their own golf game yeah so i'm trying to figure out okay where do we where do they want to target do they understand where their weaknesses are and um, so i'd go through assessment process to make sure that where they think they are is where they actually are um, and then move forward from there into the next stage of Around a little program of development in terms of where we go, how we do it, and what we do. But I think if you were, if I was going to say, if I was going to kind of sort of the generic area of the golf game, I think if you are, um, if you've got a strong long game, you feel like you're a pretty decent striker of the golf ball. Focusing the opposite end of that game, if you've got okay. a yeah. really really strong um, short game, start to focus in areas where you can kind of just pick up and improve little pieces and make make some of your weaker areas your strengths. And there are people like those, people that have got great short games but poor long games, and they kind of battle with that. And I'm not saying just give up on your short game, manage it, keep working on it. But in the background, I always call them projects. Always have two or three projects running in your golf game because – uh, you have to stabilise your golf game through every single area on the golf course. You'll you're tend to find that if you spend a predominant amount of your time working on your long game. And, and the reason why I say uh, if someone's got a strong long game, focus on your short game, is because they will be drawn to where they are most comfortable. So they will go to the range because it makes them feel good and look good. Is it actually improving their golf game? Maybe not. Um, yeah. it, like you say <clears throat> sometimes uh, you'll hear lot on social media through these kind of motivational channels it, it's about being uncomfortable and you I think like you said at a professional level that kind of makes sense as an amateur it, it does make it, you, don't, you want people to carry on enjoying what they're doing um, but enjoyment tends to come from actually getting better at the game yeah. um, long term so yes being on the range hitting it great and everyone going Kai you hit it brilliant but ultimately your performance wants to reflect your level of ability. So if your long game is a scratch golfer, but you're playing off of eight, then you're doing this, serving yourself an injustice by carrying on just hitting golf balls. Cause you really need to deal with the thing that's costing you eight shots around the golf course. Cause if everyone thinks you're for of scratch, then why is the handicap saying you're for of eight? and I do see that a lot. So I would just encourage people to kind of find, be honest with themselves. And, and if they can't search someone that can give them the advice on and show them the evidence that these areas need improving, um, and I would, I would say, whilst on that journey of searching out your areas of improvement, make sure that you get some starting points in terms of data, so that you can reflect back on how you're moving forward. So you can speak to your coach. And uh, again, I think it's a two-way communication. Whenever you work with a with a coach. Uh, on a sort of professional level. And I mean that not just because they're with professionals, but a professional level in terms of making your, improving your own performance, because it is a very professional once you start looking at yeah. how you long-term improve your golf game. Uh, so I think it's important that you look at uh, data to, um, uh, to, to give you the ability to say, why am I not improving? Or it's great to see my improvement. It gives you the encouragement that you're working with the right person as well. Uh, that's important. <laughs>
0: yeah a a thousand percent agree you know if if I go from personal experience in that respect i sort of at the start of last year you know I was I was playing off a nine handicap and and I felt as though I was playing better than that but didn't really know where I was losing my shots so I used data at the start of the year or actually the start of the previous year compared to what it was at the end of the year and that focused on you know my short game was was pretty good um the driving was was there or thereabouts, but then it was all about approach shots to the green and missing greens. Yeah. And and the numbers for the missing greens was horrendous. Um, so I think we actually had a lesson about approaches to the greens and sort of, and that has now improved. And so it is about understanding that data, not just having it for the sake of having it. Yeah, exactly. There's no point in having a, a watch on your wrist and measuring your shots and doing all of that if you don't actually use it really um, and, and focus on it. So cool okay um so i just want to touch on open qualifying uh, <laughs> um <laughs> now um obviously at roster and cobb here we um uh we host a regional qualifying for for the open and you know one of the benefits with the open which is unique to um i don't do they do it for the us open as well do they allow can anybody? The,
1: no, there is. I think you have to have world ranking points. So in the U.S. Of, open, Yeah, So right. there's a <clears throat> qualifier at Waltony, but obviously since COVID, up, I'm not sure whether that happens. But they do do. I think it's very similar. They have some world events. So in from the Open Championship perspective, they do have other qualifiers worldwide, so that you can play. And so I'd imagine, yeah. You, so the
0: worldwide ones have world ranking points. So, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. need to do those in order to. Do, but over here in the UK, as a In effect, as an amateur, you can uh, scratch golfer and below. You can, yeah, you can go to Open qualifying and try to qualify for the Open, which is obviously we hold those events here. Um, uh, We held one last summer, um, and um, I think it was the first one since COVID, wasn't it? I think last year, wasn't it? Because we didn't hold it the year before because because of COVID sort of challenges and that. Um, And and you entered the Open qualifying so now I, I know in some respects it might be a little bit painful to talk about um <laughs> but but other than, but you know certainly you know give us give us your view of sort of qualifying and how obviously things went for you whilst you were doing open qualifying
1: so first stages I got through uh, which was a credit like again an incredible achievement I think um I hadn't played competitive golf for eight years I hadn't played in the open qualifying for 15 years. So the last time it was here, which actually might be longer than that, might be 20 years ago, was the last time I played in it. So it was the first time I'd had the op- I, I, And everyone says to me, because I don't play very much, why would you put yourself through playing in the open Why that your own golf course But it's my own golf club, I've got to play it. And, and I would, uh, regardless of where I thought I might or what I might achieve, I would always play in it just because. Uh, I think the members enjoy seeing the club professional play golf. And you know what's really strange? It was so bizarre because it was a fantastic round of golf. It had ebbs and flows. It probably aged my dad by about 20 years, which my golf has always done throughout the whole of my career. <laughs> but it ended fantastically well with me uh, holding a four or five foot part to get into the playoff um, that then led me into qualifying for Fairmont and Andrews. So, from the outset, my goal was to qualify. I believe I could qualify. I hadn't played golf at all. Uh, I was rusty in every single way possible. But again, I went back to my processes of uh, what I would do if I was a player. And as much as I didn't have five, six, seven, eight hours practice a day, I made sure that the practice that I did was targeted on areas I needed to improve, targeted on areas that I could develop and enhance in a very short period of time. And I focus on every bit of it. So I managed to get my game to a point where I didn't know what would come out on the day because I'm older, I'm less fit. So playing practice rounds, and I have to manage all of that because I can't just go out and play 18 holes in a practice round competitively and intensely like I would do as as, as a touring professional because my body the next day can be tired and fatigued. Uh, none of which I'd ever experienced before. And I do seriously have to consider that. So it was, I practiced around in moderation. Lucky enough, I know the golf course pretty well. So I didn't have to have uh, an intense practice um, session. And I put a plan together. Uh, the conditions were pretty tough, which helps me a little bit because it neutralizes I complained pretty much any condition and level par was very achievable for me so I knew that if I could have tougher conditions with a level par I'd make it through uh, yet yeah, you're saying all of that, that you have outside of ability, you have all of the mental struggles of a competitive round of golf uh, and exactly I, I had all of that but in doing that I probably am mentally stronger than I was as a player 20 years ago, I think because of what I've been through as a coach with various players and trying to understand understand the game even on a much deeper level to understand how I can help players from a psychological standpoint. So I used that process. And unbelievably, in a, a panic at the end, I birdied... I went over par, coming down 17. I hold a 20-footer on 17 to get back to level. I then whacked it in the trees, which was just a disaster, 300 yards out, so I was miles away from the green. And effectively, I had to chip it out sideways. And um, I would have panicked normally, but somewhere in there, I, I thought about what I needed to do, and I played a shot from the trees that actually got me into a position where I had to place the ball from the trees, I could have just chipped it out sideways, but I placed the ball because I was con- in the. It, I was consciously aware of what I needed to do for the flag position, so I put it in a good position, laid it up to a good location, hit a seven iron into four feet, and then hold it, Um and made it through to um, Scotland. And do you know what? That was my Open Championship. Well, it wasn't quite because obviously when I got into the final qualifying. There was a part of me that thought, I might get into the Open. Um, But nevertheless, it was just ironic. uh, I didn't think I'd qualify. And all of a sudden, I'm driving. I could have ended up at any venue in the country. And there was probably five, I think. And for some (laughs) other reason, I ended up at St. Andrews. Not St. Andrews, but St. Andrews Fairmont, which is close you can get to St. Andrews in terms of the Open championships. Uh, And... Looking back on it, it was like I would have turned around and said it was fake that I ended up there because as much as I would never have qualified for the Open because I, I, that probably has passed me uh, in terms of ability because I'm playing with European tour players. These guys have got sharp wedge games, long games, everything. I was
0: going to say, so that it, it was a significant level up in terms of that next round. because yeah, it it uh,
1: the course was 7,000 plus yards. It was uh, super windy. There were so many more challenges. I made lots of mistakes. Lots of unforced errors, uh, probably outside of a couple of really bad holes in the first round. They, and they had been different. I wouldn't have actually had that bad a score, but nevertheless, it was poor. But again, I just played with two fantastic guys and enjoyed the experience. And the difference for me was, is I got to live like I did 20 years ago. So this time around it didn't mean as much, so therefore I could enjoy it.
0: You still, had your, you, still had, you still had your job, you <laughs> so you were yeah. still going to get paid.
1: So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I yeah, stayed yeah. in the, yeah. the Fairmont Hotel and I went out and practised, I worked on my short game, I, I did all of the things that you would do as a tour player um, and loved absolutely every bit of it. And everyone said to me, <laughs> oh, it must be tough. And, and it's really strange because everyone came up to me, I never had as a goal there was an expectation that I would just do it because I was playing full-time golf. What I didn't realise from all the amazing messages that got sent to me was how proud people were of me. And I thought, that's so strange. I said, no one said they're proud of me before. And I think in the 15 years I've been at Rochester, the whole transition of the membership's changed. When I was here as a junior and an amateur and as an editorial professional, the membership knew me as the golfer. 15 years on, you you forget that how much... The, the, the dynamic of our membership has changed. So a lot of people have never even seen me pick up a golf club. They think I'm a shop professional and that's all I've ever been. So when I've come off and I've gone and played, I think people were amazed I could do what I did. They had no, no expectation that I was going to make the mm-hmm. next stages of an open qualifying, let alone kind of perform yeah. under pressure like I did. And it was fantastic to have all of the juniors there, because they'd never seen me play golf. And they are obviously trying to achieve the highest levels in golf and they're all moving forward in their handicaps. So to go and see their club professional and slash coach go out and do that in those circumstances, they were amazed. Um, And I, in my head... I was 15 years ago, I was still yeah, pressure yeah. out there. I was just doing my thing. So uh, I, didn't have, I didn't feel the pressure on me because it, like you say, at the end of the day, I've got a job at the end of this. And I didn't think of what people would think of me if I shot an 80, because I'm not out there to do that. I'm out there to try and do the best I can with what I've got. And if I achieve that, regardless of result, again, that's my success.
0: Um, yeah. has, like, you give, has you given a sort of the bug to sort yeah, of to maybe want to just keep going a bit more and no, trying
1: or not. <laughs> no it's still just painful going out and shooting 80 that it was 15 years ago and uh, hitting the ball in the water in the trees <laughs> so I will definitely play it again next year um, <laughs> and joking aside I've got some competitions lined up, regional competitions which I've played in before and that's a much more kind of achievable level for me without having to work particularly hard at it so would I go back out on tour and play Euro Pro Tour events? No. Um, I've just... Apart from
0: the fact you can't now on the Euro Pro Tour. No, sort
1: of. Yeah, I can go out and shoot 65s, um, 66s. But that's my... If it's two... It, and if it's one round event, I'm OK. But when it moves into two rounds events. I mean, um, <laughs> when I was at Fairmont Sands, it was... I was so physically tired. I had to manage my practice rounds. I had a practice round first day uh, and, and then I had another one on the second day, but it, I had to reduce it to nine holes because I had to, I, I had a 36 hole event the next day, something I'd never played for years and years and years. Yeah. So feet ache, body aches. And like you say, it was just a completely different experience. And, and yeah, it's getting old, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so it's interesting you sort of saying about you know all the support that you got, and it's amazing that you sort of you sort of got that. And and interestingly enough, you say people don't didn't realise you played golf as such because they they thought you were a, a golf pro shop person and, and did a bit of coaching sort of thing. it's that sort of mentality? And then we played in we played in the pro am last year, didn't we? Together, yeah. And it's the first time I'd played with you, yeah. yeah. Actually, and no disrespect, but I was, I was like, we we're playing and I was thinking, Oh, he didn't ball. All right, can't he? <laughs> you know, it was joking aside and seeing the way that you played the game, even in that pro-am and how you hit the ball. And, and even though, you know, you've done a bit of coaching with me and, and stuff, I've never really seen you play around no. a golf, um, no. really in, in sort of a, a, relatively competitive sort of environment. So I
1: think it's, I, actually. I, I, I lots of people have said, um, <clears throat> Why don't you play even more? Uh, maybe one day I'll look back and, and think that I should play. Like, like, it's a little bit like Alfie. I don't realise what that gives back to a club golfer. I had uh, literally no idea. I couldn't imagine anyone thinking, oh, I'd love to the a professional. Because I just see myself as a normal person. I don't look at myself as being any different to um, yourself. I, I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't even know. You'd look at me and go, God, that's a great shot. And that is not me being naive. Well, I suppose it means be being naive. But that's how I generally feel. When someone says to me, you've got to go out and play with more of the members. I go, really? Why would they, uh, they want to play with me? And they say, yeah, if you turn up in the swing door, uh, Friday morning, I'd love it. Love to get out and play with it. Yeah, so I just don't I, don't. I can't see that. I just don't
0: understand that. But I think it goes. It, it goes back to that thing you were saying about you know playing with better players, yeah. and you can even though you know as a as an amateur, I wouldn't necessarily expect to be playing exactly the same type of shots that you are playing, but it's a case of seeing how you are playing them, where you are playing them to, strategy and stuff like that, and things like that. I think you gain a lot from it, and you also just because you're playing with better players you tend to raise your game you know it's, it's like the FA Cup and football and you know you get you get the underdogs and how many times do they step up and, and get a result and that's and that I think it's the same sort of scenario so it's, it's uh, you know it's really sort of good it's good to, to sort of understand that um Okay, so we're getting sort of towards the end. I've got just a few more sort of things that I, I, I desperately want to ask you. Um, so first off, we'll cover some some basic stuff. So, what's what's your what's your biggest strength in your golf game?
1: My, my ability to control distance. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm I'm very good at yeah yeah going through the shot process and being able to kind of gauge the club. Is going to get me as close to the flag as possible, and I don't mean that because I hit it close every single time I don't. But even when I miss my shots, um, they are pretty close to the flag most of the time.
0: So yes, yeah, so the distance control is 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 your is your sort of thing. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to.
1: that is definitely one of my strengths. I'm, I'm like I've got lots of attributes that are pretty good, um, but that is that's one thing I kind of sort of always go to as a yeah as a key strength.
0: It's, it's 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 one of my weaknesses in terms of in my in my um, approach shots to the green is yeah. distance control. About 40% of my shots come up short. They, right. you know, um, inside inside you know 150 yards and in, I'm um, there or thereabouts. But it's but certainly, and I think distance control. A lot of it I think is club selection. It's yeah you know people think they can do it further as, as amateurs we tend to think we can do it better than perhaps we can sometimes yeah definitely
1: I, I think like the condition when you actually start to understand shot process there's there's quite a lot of factors when you're trying to as you like you say as you are moving down your handicap it's it's adjusting every piece of your game to move with that your mental i always say to i always said to alfie I said we've always got to be ahead of where you next want to be so our preparation So we were always preparing for him to be a plus plus one or two golfer, a plus three or four golfer. So the training started when he was a scratch golfer. So he never felt, he never caught, um, he never ever caught himself up. But the journey was then also the job was never too big um, in terms of where we had to go. Because once we got going, it was about just making sure that he was always two or three steps ahead of where he was right then. And the preparation was always building for the next level up. And like you say... for for club golfers it's always sort of exploring what a scratch golfer would be kind of looking at from the different elements of their golf game and where would yours be falling right now if you can do that if you can get that information and process of shot would be probably one of them and I would like as I say just encourage you to kind of sort of look at the details of something that you're probably missing um, in terms of calculation that would probably help um, I mean if it's a strike thing you can't help that that's going to affect distance massively but if you feel like you're kind of sort of performing pretty decently it would be something in that process whether it would be temperature some and wind direction uh, maybe not kind of focusing on enough of that process you're thinking more of outcome than anything else and that's just distracting you for a moment to pick up a key ingredient of that
0: I think one, of the, one of the processes I think we went through at one point was you know, for every shot you would say now what's the distance to the front of the green or yeah. to, to any is there any danger at the front yeah you know, what club do you need to hit in order to make sure you cover that distance yeah so any danger at the front what's you know if you hit it the best you've ever hit it what's the maximum it can go so yep. you don't go into danger past a flag yeah and then ideally that should then end you up with some your ideal club there somewhere in in the middle there um, you go. that was and, absolutely brilliant and, and, uh, and uh and sort of going from it so uh <laughs> So, I, I must have, I've obviously learned from
1: so it. <laughs> you definitely have, yeah, me, yeah, that's so, exactly yeah. what you do.
0: Um, cool, so that's your, that's your strongest
1: part of the game. So, what's,
0: what's your weakest part of the game?
1: Well, I think I'd be asked if anyone that, li- that does listen to this podcast and knows me, it would definitely be putting. I'm um, really great at coaching it, but for some unknown reason, throughout my, I don't actually think I'd be sitting here now as your club professional, <clears> is if I could have held more putts as a golfer. So that comes down to two things. I think probably me as a practiser. So again, um, almost contradicting myself a little bit. I used to practise a lot more on my long game, which is now probably one of my strengths, and less on my short game. Again, poor direction, poor learning, uh, all of the above. Um, and then, yeah, just just sometimes it doesn't happen. doesn't go in. Uh, I guess Lee Westwood would be... As much as he's a phenomenal golfer and in our eyes, lots and lots of money, achieved so much. Probably the undoing for him under pressure in terms of the ball just wouldn't go in the hole at a major championship. So I suppose when I look at my level and what, I mean, he's had a much more frustrating time. But yeah, it was putting definitely, just would not go in. I've had a lot of rounds where I could have probably shot some amazing scores, won some tournaments and yeah, just cost me.
0: Uh, that, that that sort of leads, I suppose, to and going back to what we were saying before about focusing on the right things yeah, yeah. for your for your game. It's very easy to to focus on the things that you enjoy doing and you're good at. It's, yeah, yeah. We always go to that sort of area, but we tend to leave the things that we're not comfortable either practicing or, or, don't, or know don't, know exactly. yeah, don't know about. Yeah, so like, you oh. don't know about. If you're not tracking your stats, you don't know that that's necessarily <laughs> the bad part. Game, or what's costing you the most shots? Yeah. You might think you have an idea, but is that truly what what the problem is mm. um i used to think it was driving but actually it wasn't driving it was my approach shots to the green yeah um and immediately obvious when i looked at the stats yeah, but but, great, it? but 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 equally even knowing that i sh- still know i don't practice that enough but i should do um and probably after this podcast i will definitely go away <laughs> and practice it more but um, but uh that, that'll be another thing the last thing i want to cover off as a sort of a topic on here is really sort of is is the the ele- i say it's not really the elephant in the room anymore when people are talking about live golf yeah. and and the impact that, that sort of has on on the game you know they've got uh, as we're recording this uh, i think the next uh, they're just kicking that off i think next weekend possibly they are, yeah. um, is the next next tournament for live golf do you, you know do you have a view o- on that i I've, I've got lot of, i've had different views each week i think on it um you know from a personal perspective i'm all for having different um different genres of the game and and being able to to watch a lot more a lot more golf basically if it gives me access to watching more golf i think it's it's brilliant the downside i think it all seems to focus around on the money that's the fact you know saudi side of things and and all of that yeah clearly there's issues in terms of some of the stuff that, that happens within within the country but from a live golf perspective i think it just gives us another it's another of a format to watch, um, which is really good for the game personally. Um, but as a golf professional, you know, and someone who's been involved with, you know, looking to go onto European tours and things, do you, how does it sort of sit with yourself?
1: I think it's a, I mean, you covered a lot of it off there, kind of exactly that. You could, you could branch off into various sort of subcategories of live and, and have a discussion about it. I think from a personal perspective, as a purist and, structure of what we've had all of our all of my golf in life it's hard to understand where it really fits right now and where it goes forward in terms of um i think it's a bit like test cricket and 2020 cricket you've kind of got this like the the purist is going to go test cricket's great and i think that's kind of like the four-round tournament for us right now And then you go into 2020 cricket that probably draws a completely different crowd towards it. And it would be, I would never watch 2020 cricket. Uh, Sorry, I would never watch um, Test cricket. It would bore me. I'm not a cricket fan. But now 2020 cricket for a night out would be a fantastic event to go and watch. Um, So now when you look at it from that, I look at it from that perspective, I could see how a a kind of sort of non-golfer... Might actually be drawn to that kind of event. So they might have, they might not even play golf. Oh, we don't play cricket, but I would certainly go and watch a 2020 cricket. I understand it. It's very dynamic. It's quick. It's good fun. Um, again, it's a completely different look. It's not traditional in any sense. So, yeah, that's my kind of comparison, really. Uh, so the, the money side of it, uh, I think it kind of, The PGA, PGA, so I get where the players have come from. Um, They are, the PGA Tour is is a bit like the Premier League, except it's not just the Premier League, it's every league. It dominates the world. And I think Liv have gone, hang on a minute, let's kind of take on this animal that is the PGA Tour and try and add some diversity and, and say, look, they should be paid some money. They are the stars of the show. And like as a golfer, growing up, you don't get anything. I mean, like a footballer turns up on a football pitch and gets paid £100,000 a week as a Premier League footballer or whatever it might be, um, regardless of whether they perform well or not a pga tour player doesn't have to just play well for one or two rounds he has to play well for four rounds and if he doesn't play well in the first two rounds he doesn't earn any money that week yeah. no one gives him anything he has to pay for his caddies his travel and all the other expenses that go with it and that follows down every single tour uh, so i think it's it needs to push the pga tour to turn around and say it'll be a bit, bit more diverse i think they've had all the eggs in one basket and i guess that power and control is being tested right now so as much as i don't like the disruption i think it may just kind of open up something a little different and already that money has started to flow through into some of the events i mean the phoenix open last week was a prime example of the and i'm not saying it's about money it's not it's not but it has to be fair across the board and there should be uh, it should be more open and diverse in terms of uh, the industry that we're in, and I think the PGA Tour have had it under wraps. They're angry because they don't like someone challenging their baby, and, I don't know, let's see yeah. where it goes.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly I, I, I agree. I think, I, think, I think the thing with the Live Golf for me is, it, the, I think the worst thing from my perspective is is that it's more about the players than the fans. It feels that way. Yeah. It doesn't feel as though... <clears throat> I don't know, to me, the big driver, always they're always talking about money. And, yeah. and And for the everyday fan, I don't think we really care about the fact that they're earning all this money. All we want to see is good golf yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's what it is. So it gives you another format, another way of watching it. You can watch it on YouTube and that now. So yeah. it does give you that. Um, whether or not that changes, I think they've signed a TV deal now. They have. Um, with um, the CW network, I think it is. Um, so... It will be interesting to sort of see how that goes, but um, it's, good it's not just going to get... away.
1: It's not going away. Clearly, it's not. No. no, no. I just, I just hope that they find a compromise the PGA Tour because we need to see the guys that are on the live coming back to the PGA Tour. I don't really understand the whole banning of them and pushing them to one side. I just don't see that has any mileage in it. Like the guys that are on the live are fantastic golfers. If you always wanted to encourage a tour that had the best golfers in the world yeah. why just because they decide to go and work somewhere else for a little bit of uh, a, a little part of the year do you then just go well we don't want you on at all that's kind of almost yeah. a little bit of kind of a contradiction in in certain terms
0: yeah great great cool right well thank you for that um very last question is and we're going to ask this of all future interviewees um is um What's your
1: favourite practice drill? Favourite practice drill? It's going to sound really boring, this. Um, But it's the, again, coming back to practice, it's about finding um, a challenge for you. So I don't have a, a, I have lots of drills that I use during sessions. But challenging yourself, so let's say, for instance, a good example of this would be, let's say the next time you're out chipping and you're working on um, a standard chip around the greens, just off the fringe, and it's fairly basic. Uh, try and work on one part of the process of being a good chipper. So there's five processes in being a good chipper: um, starting on the right line, landing it in the right spot, choosing the right club, um, and swinging the right length, and um, choosing the right landing zone. It's the five L's I call it. So you've got um, you've got line. At, You've got lie, land, loft, length, um, and line. If I haven't got there's five there. So go out and work on just one of that that very first element, which is line. And chip the ball from a standard lie. And if you can hit three or four shots into three or four feet, then move on to a slightly tougher lie. And I grade them in sort of one to ten. So move yourself into a slightly tougher lie, don't change any more of the conditions, just online, um, just on lie and then see if you can play, get the same dispersion off of um, an- another tough lie and then move into, when you've done that, move into an extreme lie. Once you can do all three tough lies or 10 tough lies, whatever you decide you want to choose, move on to the next element of that process and include landing zone. So can you then chip the ball from various lies into different landing zones. So you start to build the momentum behind understanding your game in a step-by-step process. Um, so for me, like you say, I worked with the guy over the weekend, and we'd put, um, we worked online with him. We're a slightly different stage of the process, we worked online, and he would chip golf balls with no target around the, um, around the hole. And it wasn't until I went and put two alignment sticks uh, about 8 eight inches or 12 inches to the right and another one 12 inches to the left, that all of a sudden he could start to piece together the vision of how he wanted to chip the ball towards the hole because it gave him much more focus of where he wanted to ball to the, uh, the, the ball to finish. And I said to him, I said, look, the goal is here to finish one ball between those rods and then you can leave your practice session. So what that changed in terms of practice for him was it gave him a goal, it gave him not a time frame, it gave him the ability to kind of just aim for a target. And once he completed it, he had to focus on it. Otherwise, if he didn't focus on it, so it was so tight, if he didn't read and go through the process of hitting that shot correctly, he could have been there for an hour. Um, And then for me, that is a great way of starting to sort of practice, put pressure on yourself and get more from one ball because ultimately what you want to try and do is we only get one chance ever on the golf course. So let's turn that one ball into the most important golf ball of your life. And if you can create that on the, on the practice area, you're pretty kind of powerful when you go to the golf course. You don't get 50 chances. So the likelihood is, is somewhere along the line you're losing focus, which means that's exactly what you're training into yourself to do on the course. Yeah, so, so I know they didn't give you a drill, but hopefully, it gave you an understanding of really how to just how to simply approach, a how to practice approach session. What your practice yeah. might,
0: might be. Yeah, I've just sort of take from that in terms of when I'm on the range, I never aim at the same target twice.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Because you never, you never do that on the golf course no. when you're playing around. And if you don't do it in a round, then why would you practice it on the range? That's it exactly is, that is the, is the thinking behind it yeah, so exactly it's, that, it's
1: and, that and, and, you, and you get multiple like you say aiming at multiple targets gives you more than just like just aiming at multiple targets it gets you kind of having to learn how to get comfortable lining up across certain parts of the golf course you, like you say you might feel really comfortable aiming down the left hand side of the fairway but when you start to aim with the target to the right of you it might be a bit uncomfortable on the golf course so you get to feel that when you stand there and just hit 100 balls straight down the range you don't really get that feel and and when you're on the golf course you're put in that circumstance and you get uncomfortable you don't know why you're uncomfortable but you just are uncomfortable and like you say if you can figure that out in practice then it's great
0: brilliant that's great excellent okay well we've we're i suppose we'll wrap things up there (laughs) um thanks ever so much for your time it's been a real eye-opener um learned a lot good (laughs) i've definitely learned a lot um I suppose the last thing to ask is, you know, if if people want to um, get in contact with you, or you know, we can obviously post sort of some things in, into the description and that. So, is there a, a, a best way to get in touch with you? Uh,
1: fine. my, I mean, certainly if you wanted uh, any help, obviously you can contact me at Rochester and Common Golf Club. So, if you ever wanted oh. to drop me an email, um, obviously I can give that to you if you want to, yeah, or we'll visit. Post that in so, but other than that, Warrenwood PGA. Co. UK, that's my um, kind of sort of uh, website and th- that's kind of sort of more lesson based really more than anything else but yeah we'll, do.
0: we'll put we'll put all the details in the uh, in the yeah. description yeah, yeah. So, so people can reach out to you um, and, uh, and do that but other than that yeah, thanks for your time no worries. my it. pleasure
1: thanks for having me Brilliant.
0: thanks again to everybody for listening hopefully everybody got some real good nuggets from that one. And uh, obviously, thanks to uh, Warren for his uh, time and uh, and knowledge that uh, he he has passed on. Uh, Very helpful. And um, yeah, until uh, next time. Thanks for listening.